I'm Joanna Fortune, psychotherapist and author of the 15-minute parenting series of books. Welcome to my 15-minute parenting podcast, where I take a common parenting struggle and break it down with practical, playful solutions. Let's get going. Just before I start talking about this episode, just to let you know from the outset and in the form of a little trigger warning that I'm going to be talking about self-harm and self-harming behavior. So if that's something that, you know, is difficult for you and very uncomfortable, just be aware of that's what we're going to talk about. But it may be something you find supportive as well. I got a request to talk about this from a parent, but also from a professional who has just in recent months remarked about the sharp rise in self-harming behaviors, um, in self-sabotaging behaviors and self-destructive behaviors, and was just really concerned about how do we get a message out there that is accessible and relatable for parents and teenagers. I, this isn't exclusively to teenagers, by the way, but it is something that is more prevalent in adolescence. So, you know, a parent reached out to me and said that they had discovered um, that their young person had been self-harming. They didn't feel they'd handled it in the moment very well, which is completely understandable because, you know, caught on the hop, not seeing it coming, reacted from exactly what got triggered in them, which was fear. And when we react out of fear, that's never our ideal moment. So my advice to this parent was in speaking through was to go back, hit the pause button, hit the reset button even and say, look, I didn't handle that as well as I wish I had. I'd really like to do it again. Here's what I wish I had said. Will you give me a chance to do it again? And of course, the teenager just being really grateful that they could do it over was like, of course, we can do that. So I thought it was worth drilling a bit deeper into this and just talking about it in this episode, because honestly, as a parent, not much else is going to trigger the kind of panic, fear, anxiety in us than discovering our child or our teenager has been self-injuring. And unfortunately, it is actually quite common in adolescence. And but the causes for it, you know, the causes or what's underpinning it vary wild, widely, um, you know, but marking the skin with cuts, scratches, burns, maybe picking the skin, biting the skin, hitting one's own body until it bruises. They tend to be the most common forms of self-injury that I come across. Um, some teenagers, you know, who might also have a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or even eating disorders or eating disordered behavior or who may have experienced in you know trauma explicit trauma they would be at higher risk for self-harming or self-injurious behavior but and again I'm not saying that if you have those you will definitely self-harm you're just at higher risk of it but so are young people who have a history of you know any of the following things like low self-esteem who may feel rejected or lonely and I mean in a pervasive way who may feel unsafe at school or unsafe at home, who may experience, you know, pervasive, all-consuming perfectionism and always feeling like they're not good enough and that it, if it's not perfect, it's a failure. So hold themselves to impossible standards. Um, young people who may experience frequent conflicts with their friends or family. And again, I mean that at a heightened level rather than a standard falling out where you snap at each other and then you come back together. But teenagers who experience conflict and then stay in that ruptured state of conflict for a prolonged period of time. Uh, teenagers who are prone or predisposed to impulsive behavior in general. 
they may be at higher risk or teenagers who have it or young people who have a tendency to take unhealthy risks and remember in a previous episode I've spoken about risk-taking behavior and I often speak about the importance of exposing our children to healthy risk-taking behavior and to try and direct them in that way but if your teenager or young person has a tendency to take unhealthy risks that you know they may even in and of themselves be behaviors that could result in a physical harm um, that may not have been their explicit intention but they're running that risk all of the time so I mean there's lots of young people that this can affect and lots of backgrounds that can you know underpin this behavior but often you know by the time we find it out the behavior has been going on for a long time and it's far from what I've heard it dismissed and minimized as as attention seeking behavior that is grossly inaccurate and missing the point entirely you know it's not attention seeking behavior teenagers who engage in self-injury are actually very very good at concealing it from others and for a long period of time so far from looking for attention from you I'm concealing this from you and again Again, I don't love that phrase in general, attention-seeking behavior, because I think in general, what looks like attention-seeking behavior is actually connection, needing behavior. And that's a very different thing. And I think, you know, while you might see some scars or marks, the signs of self-injury are often much more subtle than this. It's not as obvious as that all of the time. So be mindful of any sudden significant, unexplained, you know, no specific context such as a bereavement or a parental separation or some life event that has happened, anything that is sudden, significant and unexplained behavior change in your young person that you're going, something is not right here. Listen to your own uh-oh feeling when it comes to your child. You know them better than anybody else, you know, and also look out for any of the following. Okay, suspicious, unexplained looking scars, wounds that don't heal or seem to get worse over time, increased isolation from their peer group or from family, spending increased amount of time alone in their bedroom. I keep saying increased because please hold in mind that developmentally teenagers do pull away from us parents. They do retreat more into their private spaces. They do seek out more privacy and that is developmentally normal and healthy. So I'm talking about over and above in this regard. Um, teenagers who talk about self-injury you know they might mention it in a my friend who you know and also don't suspect if your child has said that to you that it is then maybe it really is their friend but if they're talking about it um, they might be saying my peers are doing this or I'm curious about it or I don't know about it or I'm testing out what would you say if I was telling you about my friend before I can tell you about myself you know maybe they're keeping sharp items in their bedroom that would typically be in a more shared space like a bathroom cabinet razors scissors maybe a random sharp piece of glass or porcelain that you're like oh did you break a cup why have you got this piece here um, or anything that you think why is that in your bedroom secretive behavior now beyond again what is typical and healthy for teenagers um, certainly wearing long sleeves or long trousers in hot weather um, avoiding social activities as a pattern not as a kind of one-off event maybe they're wearing a lot of bandages or wrapping hair bands or scarves around their arms um, avoiding sports other activities that they typically would have enjoyed but they may have to change clothes in front of others and they don't want to do that I'm giving you this list again it's not a checklist 
list of tick, 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 because none of these in and of themselves are an indicator of self-harming behavior. But what you should look out for is a sudden and unexplained shift in any of these or a number of these areas. And if this is familiar to you, don't approach your teenager now with an aha, I've got you style of approach, but do so with curiosity and empathy, staying in that all important inquisitive stance of not knowing and seeking to better understand because your response in the moment matters. It really does. And your reaction thereafter matters. So don't rush in. Be very grounded, considered and kind in your response and approach to this. I mean, yourself, you may feel a range of feelings in the face of learning about your teen or your young person's self-harming behavior. You may well feel these in a rush very quickly, you know, kind of an emotional flooding experience. You may feel fear, anxiety, shock, sadness, even anger about this. You may feel pulled towards a, how could you do this to yourself? Or an order of, you have to stop this now. And of course, that's perfectly normal and understandable. It's not as if you have a script for these moments. Let's be honest. But even if you did have a script, it won't be what comes to your mind in the moment of discovery. Why not? Because when you discover something that strikes you to your very core, your reaction comes from a more primitive place. Your own attachment system is activated and you emotionally flip your lid with your limbic amygdala area firing all of those fight, flight, freeze signals to you. And in this state, you cannot reach for that script even if you had it. You simply react in a raw and real way. And that is not always the quote unquote right response. But you know what? It is the real response. Afterwards, when you've had time, and this is what I was talking to that parent about, when you've had time and space and distance to self-regulate and you find the words to say what you wished you had said or the invitation to hug that you wished you had opened with, it's never too late to do or say the right thing. I really believe that in general, by the way, and also in this context, because in an emotionally dysregulated state, it's all too easy to say the wrong thing or to say something in the wrong way because you're speaking from your emotional center, not the logical reasoning part of your brain. That's literally how it's working. So I find it helpful to have some what I'd call stock statements that serve as a holding response while I'm internally grappling with my own thoughts and feelings to get them back in line. You know, when I'm going, OK, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I like to have a couple of things that I can default to. So I prep them when I'm not emotionally dysregulated. So I have them when I am. I might now these are not. Please don't see these as a script. I'm just giving you examples. You will cut them up with your own because it should honor your authentic feelings on the subject, you know, um, but you don't want to be dragged into a conversation that you're not prepped for, that you're not emotionally grounded for, and you don't feel ready to have. So I might use phrases like, okay, wow, that's a lot for me to process in this moment. I'm going to take some time to sit with it and I'm happy to talk about it later or explicitly at this seven o'clock or 7.30 when the others are gone to bed, I'm going to come back and talk to you, but I need time. Okay. Or you might say something like, I'm feeling a lot of emotion in response to what's just been said or what's just happened. And I don't want to speak from that emotional place. So I need time to be able to think clearer about this. Can you give me some time to get my head around it? Or you might say something like, thank you for telling me this. I understand how difficult it must have been and I see how brave you are. I want to be able to respond as best I can and I can't do that in this moment. So let's take some space from each other and have a chat about it later when we've had some time, both of us, to think about it more. 
or just being really honest and saying, I don't know what to say because I'm feeling so much right now and I need to feel these feelings before I can make sense of it. I hope you understand that. I'm not walking away from you. I will be back. Or something like, I feel that if I say anything right now, it's going to be the wrong thing. I believe the right thing is that I walk away and have a cry and get some clarity. I love you and we'll talk about it later. Because in those responses, you're being really open and honest and authentic about your emotional experience. That's very respectful of you, your boundaries, but also very respectful towards your teenager. I don't want to do you a disservice now. I'm feeling upset and I'm modeling for you how to take care of those feelings and what we should do with and for ourselves when we're feeling emotionally triggered and aroused. So there's a lot of learning in that, but it also gives you a safety clause that you don't you know, just react in a very impulsive way, but that you say, gosh, this is a lot because do you know what? It is. It is a lot. And you can always go back and own what happened in an open and honest way. Like I said to this parent, when it didn't go right, they did flip their lid. They did shout and roar. They d it didn't go well. That you can go back and say, look, I didn't say or do what I wished I had when I learned about this. I think it's because I felt so scared about what it meant and so sad that I didn't know this before and that I missed the signs that I let you down and I didn't help you. And I'm so sorry. Can I try it again now? Because there is something I would like to say or do. And I think it's more about you and how you might be feeling than it is about my feelings and me. Let me try it again. Our children and teenagers are very forgiving of our parental transgressions, maybe even more forgiving than we can be of theirs. They will give us a second chance. So always ask for one when you need it. It also teaches them that they can ask us for an emotional do-over that they can ask for a second chance and they can make repair following an emotional rupture or a behavioral rupture even. And that's really important. It's really helpful to bear in mind that just as this is really scary for you, it's also really scary for your young person. They might be holding some blend of guilt, of shame, of fear, regret, a deep sadness of their own. And we have to find ways to stay open, to stay out of judgment on this, as with so much else, let's be honest. We have to be there to listen, and I mean truly listen, and to think and feel it through together. You want to offer reassurance that you're going to reach out and talk to some people, that this is bigger than you and you can't keep this within your family, that you will have to get help and be very clear about that, that it's not something you're going to keep secret. It needs help from professionals who understand the issue better than you do. Reach out to your GP in the first instance. They're going to be able to refer you to child and adolescent mental health services or perhaps to a private um, adolescent psychotherapist or psychologist who has experience in this area. And do, don't be afraid to ask people when you call up for appointments, are you experienced in this area? Because anyone who is has no problem telling you and say, yes, I am. This is what I work with. This is what I'm trained to do. See if there are any services. You know, they're often run by the not-for-profit sector in your area that could offer an immediate crisis appointment, like a crisis counselling session while you're waiting for something else to come online, because some, sometimes that's what's needed. You want something tomorrow or the next day, and you can't afford to go on a waiting list because they could offer you those crisis sessions as a holding space while you wait for an appointment with other services. Lots of love, lots of nurture, lots of reassurance. And it's okay if you cry. It's okay to show your teenager that you're upset and that this is difficult. And you can cry together and then you can do something self-healing. Keep those doors of communication open and hear this for what it is. I need your help. I'm struggling and I trust you 
to make this better for me and to help me out of it. It's not an easy road. It can be a very long and challenging road. So please ensure that you have supports in place for yourself in your rush to put them in place for your teenager. Please ensure that you get some parent therapy sessions. Many therapists will offer that as part of working with your teenager. And if not, that you can ask for a referral for yourself and reaching out to somebody in your own family or friend network who is there for you and can give you that space to emotionally exhale when you're working so hard to do and say the right thing around your teenager. So mind yourself to mind them. And I really hope this has been a helpful conversation about a very difficult topic. Thank you for listening. I'd love if you could leave a positive review, share this with a friend or a few friends, or even subscribe to the podcast. It really helps others to find it and helps with visibility online. You can also follow me on Instagram at Joanna Fortune or on Twitter at the Joanna Fortune. No E at the end of that. Tune in next time for more 15-minute parenting.